Matthew chapter 24, beginning in verse 32. Now learn the parable from the fig tree. When its branch has already become tender and puts forth its leaves, you know that summer is near. So you too, when you see all these things, recognize that he is near, right at the door. Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. But of that day and hour no one knows, but even the angels of heaven nor the Son of Man, but the Father alone. For the coming of the Son of Man will be like the days of Noah. For as in those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage until the day that Noah entered the ark. And they did not understand until the flood came and took them all away. So will the coming of the Son of Man be. Then there will be two men in the field. One will be taken and one will be left. Two women will be grinding at the mill and one will be taken and one will be left. We're at a place in the ministry of the Lord Jesus as he's preaching in, on the mountainside of the Olivet. He's looking off of the Mountain of Olives and he's seeing his disciples there. And this is nearing the very end of his life. So he's putting a lot of matters in view and perspective for his disciples. He's giving them information that's to kind of coalesce everything and start to bring it together and bring some conclusion to his work on earth. It's much like when we, when we drive a car. When we drive a car, if we're not careful and we're on the interstate for a long period of time, we can kind of get kind of just focused in on that lane ahead of us and see those lines right there ahead of us. And we're not really paying attention to anything else because we're just kind of really focused on that. He's saying to them, no, 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 I don't want you to just be focused right here. I want you to see there's a lot of things in perspective here. When we drive, we want to use our rear view mirror, our two side view mirrors. If we're looking ahead, we want to see everything in front of us. We want to have a full perspective of what is around us and behind us. You may have been in that situation where you're driving along for a long time on the interstate and as you're just kind of focused on what's ahead, all of a sudden some car just whoo, flies right by you and about scares you half to death. The Lord Jesus is saying, no, I don't, I don't want it to be like that. I don't want you to be scared half to death about these things. I want you to listen carefully and think and get a, a broader view. Use all your mirrors and get a broader view of what's happening. So we see as he preaches to them up to this point, from verses 1 to 26, he's been very focused on the desolation and its specificness of the destruction of Jerusalem in AD 70. He's specifically been teaching and unfolding that for them, that in that near future that is coming. And then in verse 27, he gives just a little glimpse of the second coming. And then he returns for just a moment back to that destruction of Jerusalem in 28 and 29. And then he gives another glimpse far future of his far future second coming. And now he begins to go back and forth between these two until he's going to really begin to unfold the second coming in, in a greater way. But he has no problem in his view of his work and his ministry in going between what is going to be that near future desolation and then what is going to be that far future second coming. That's not a problem for the Lord Jesus. And he continues to unfold that very thoughtfully and carefully. 
So as we see this, we want to continue to have the near future in mind in its appropriate place and continue to start to see the far future, his second coming, in its proper and appropriate place. Number one this morning, recognize the importance of the time indicators in the text. Recognize the importance of the time indicators in the text. The Lord Jesus in verses 30 and 31 has just given this this kind of unfolding glimpse of his second coming. There's things there that that give us just this glimpse of his second coming and what it will be like. It's not full, it's not everything, it's not any way in our imagination that we can fully grasp all of it, but he's kind of unfolded that. And then in verse 32, he says, Now learn the parable. When he says, Now learn, he moves the thought back to the desolation for a moment. He moves the thought back to the desolation. Now learn the parable from the fig tree. When its branch has already become tender and put forth its leaves, you know that summer is near. So you too, when you see all these things, recognize that he is near right at the door. Now you have to remember, he's given signs of that near future desolation. He's been telling them these are some things that you can recognize. Luke's version of this recording gives even more specific information of the desolation itself. So he's returning just for a moment to remind them, now learn the parable of the fig tree. Here's what the fig tree does. When you see these tender shoots, you know that the leaves are coming and summer is near. He says when you see these signs, recognize this near future desolation, the destruction of Jerusalem, that it's near. He says you will see all these things. Recognize that he is near right at the door. Now the Lord Jesus is going to bring judgment on Jerusalem at the destruction of Jerusalem. But that's not his second coming. And we said that a couple of weeks ago. And we said that from verses 23 down to verse 26. If people tell you, I'm here, don't look for me. No, the destruction of Jerusalem, I will be a part of it. Because I will be the uh, coronated king in this sense after his ascension. uh, This will be a recognition. And Jerusalem will be destroyed. Judea will be taken away. He's saying this will be full and final to what was prophesied by Ezekiel. In verse 18 of chapter 10 when it said that the glory of the Lord departed, the temple worship was never the same after the presence of the Lord departed. It was still useful. It was useful in typology. It was useful as a picture, but it was never the same in effect because the presence of the Lord was not there in that same way. So they could still have the temple service. They could still have the sacrifice, and the people could still see the type. But it was all pointing forward, and now the Lord Jesus is saying, have all of this in view. Recognize The glory of the Lord already departed. You've been having this temple service as a type of something you could see and recognize, but the type has come. And I am here, and I have preached to you and told you who I am and what I am doing, and now I am telling you clearly. I am the temple. The 
because I have come to tabernacle among you. And it will be finally shown to you when the temple is destroyed. So he takes him, the disciples back for just a moment to get them to think once again in that near future sense. Verse 34, Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Now, first of all, this is an indicator of that near future sense. This generation. He's saying in, in this generation, those, those, there's going to be disciples among them that will see that desolation. Some uh, writers, pastors, theologians give the phrase this generation a more general sense uh, as though it, it, it's referring to this generation as something broad that covers thousands of years. I would say that's kind of difficult to say that. Could there be an instance where in some way there's a small glimpse of something far future here? Could be. But more than likely, he's giving them this sense that you're going to see this desolation. Then he begins a transition back to his second coming. And we can see this is an interesting transition in verse 35. He says, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. Now, this is the transition from what is near future in the destruction of Jerusalem and what is far future in his second coming. Because he puts this in a context and says, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. So first of all, his words refer to those words which he's preached about the desolation. His word's not going to pass away. That desolation, the destruction of Jerusalem, it will happen. And we now know historically it did happen, just as Jesus prophesied it. But he's also giving some indication of heaven and earth will pass away. So there's a far future sense to that. And here's his transition to this far future sense in just these two phrases and our time indicators in verse 36. But of that day and hour no one knows. Now that's interesting because in the near future sense, he's already told them there's going to be indicators of what's going to happen in the near future and you need to be watching and paying attention. And you'll know because you'll know not to flee to the city. See, that's very specific information. Do not flee to the city. If you go to the city of Jerusalem, you will be destroyed as it will be destroyed. But here he says, but of that day and hour, no one knows. Now, the second portions of this, not even angels of heaven nor the Son, but, but the Father alone. I'm going to get to that in a minute. Okay, We're going to deal with some of the other things that are in its context right here before I deal with that. But what we have to see first and foremost is this time indicator. But of that day and hour, no one knows. So he gives a move in the time indicator from that which was near future to that which is far future. Number two, recognize the emphasis on the second coming in the text. 
recognize the importance of the time indicators in the text and recognize the emphasis on the second coming in the text. Letter A under number two. The second coming will not come with the same signs as the desolation. The second coming will not come with the same signs as the desolation. The desolation had some particular signs with it. The armies of Rome marching over and around Judea. The armies of Rome surrounding the city of Jerusalem. The armies of Rome and its invasion was a more gradual thing in time. I want you to think about that for a second now because we're going to make some connections to that in a moment. We went through the history of it. I'm not going to rehearse all that, but think about in time from what, what started kind of boiling over A.D. 66 to A.D. 68, then in A.D. 68 to A.D. 70 it boiled over even more from Vespasian to Titus, and then there was this destruction in A.D. 72 of uh, surrounding areas of Judea and Jerusalem, and then they took over everything by A.D. 72. Masada was done. Well, that was kind of a gradual happening. These things were building politically. They were boiling over for really decades. Well, the second coming will not come with the same signs as the desolation. Letter B. The second coming will be swift and complete, unlike the desolation. The second coming will be swift and complete, unlike the desolation. I'm, I'm focusing on Jesus' words here. There are other places we could go, um, but, but I'm trying to really give you a good, solid overview of what the Lord Jesus is saying here. And what he says is, no human being will know the hour of the second coming. No human being will know the hour of the second coming. In a sense, he had given evidence, though, to the desolation of how they could know. When you see the armies surrounding Jerusalem, you will know. That near future thing, he's saying, you will know. But here he says of the second coming, no human being will know the hour of the second coming. They won't know it. Secondly, no human will recognize the impending judgment until the swift arrival of the second coming. Now, how does he give an example of that? Verse 37. For the coming of the Son of Man will be just like the days of Noah. For as in those days, before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving marriage until the day that Noah entered the ark. And they did not understand until the flood came and took them all away. So will the coming of the Son of Man be. Now, for the desolation, they've been given some information about the desolation. They've been given some, some context to it. Did they get every single detail? No. But they got some information enough to be able to look at it and go, ooh, when, these, when the city's surrounded, when armies surround it, when the Gentiles trample it, okay, ding, 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 ding. We've got some information. But compare that to the day of Noah. Noah was building ark. They didn't understand it. Noah was preaching according 
to the New Testament, he was a preacher. They didn't listen. Now, I want you to think about this for a minute. I don't, I don't recall that the Scripture teaches us that the whole time there was, there was drought. There probably had been other rain showers that had come and gone. So it wasn't until the actual flood came that people were like, uh-oh, this is different. I'm knee-deep. I'm waist-deep. I'm swimming. It came on them. Boom. The rushing of the rain, the waters from up under the earth coming out, and it came on them sudden, sudden, and they were dead. This will be the suck the suddenness of the second coming. It'll be like that. They'll be eating and drinking and marrying and giving in marriage. Until the day Noah entered the ark. Until the day that the Son of Man comes. There'll be no mistake when he comes. There'll be no mistake at all. It'll be so unmistaken and it will be different from the desolation and that they could see the desolation, but there were plenty of people going on and living their lives even while Rome invaded Jerusalem. Nations, cities, states, lots of them went on and lived their lives while Rome is trampling Jerusalem. But when the Son of Man comes and His second coming... Every tribe will mourn. You remember he already said that, right? Every tribe. Every tribe will mourn. Everything will stop. It'll be that sudden, that real. Everyone will know. And it'll be too late. So he tells us, no human will recognize the impending judgment until the swift arrival of the second coming. No human will be spared the consequences of the second coming. Verse 40 and 41. Then there will be two men in the field, and one will be taken, and one will be left. Two women will be grinding in the mill, and one will be taken, and one will be left. Now, in one sense, there's some little, little piece of evidence of how people will, some will go on and live their lives at the destruction of Jerusalem, and it will be too late for some of them. But there will have been signs for his disciples. For the scripture in other places goes on to tell us that we will not know the day or the hour of the second coming. But we will know that all people of all tribes, tongues, and nations will be judged. Some will be cast into the lake of fire. Others, others from all the different tribes and tongues and nations, they will be in Christ and they will be brought in and welcomed. There is this thread of hope that runs through each and every piece of this, as Scott pointed out. The glory departed, 
but grace was not gone. There was grace for those before Christ came incarnate. It was grace in the Messiah who was yet to come. Believe, believe, believe is what Jesus would say when he did come. But that had been the mantra all along. Believe. Abraham believed and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. Moses believed. David believed. Those in their lines believed. And when Jesus came, he said, believe, repent and believe for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. It puts the hope squarely on the grace of God. Believe in the very grace of God through his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And that thread of hope, that thread of grace has always been there. Even from Genesis chapter 3. No human will be spared the consequences of the second coming. For some, the consequences will be of their unbelief. For others, the consequences will be according to their belief. That by the Spirit of God, they were raised from the dead, enabled to believe in Christ Jesus. Letter C. The second coming will be unveiled in ways not intended for even the Son of Man to reveal. The second coming will be unveiled in ways not intended for even the Son of Man to reveal. If you go back to verse 36, but have that day and hour no one knows. Now, if the text had just said, but of the day and the hour no one knows, not even the angels. We've probably been fine. But it says, not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son, but the Father alone. That phrase or phrases, nor the Son, but the Father alone. If it had said, not even the angels of heaven, and still said, but the Father alone, we still would have had some questions if we had thought through the text. But it specifically says here, the Lord Jesus says, that of that day and hour, speaking of his second coming, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son, but the Father alone. If we think through that for a minute, all kind of questions can come to our minds. What are we saying about the Lord Jesus? What's the Lord Jesus saying about himself? That ought to be the real question. What is the Lord Jesus saying about himself? First of all, I want you to recognize, this should not alarm you. This should not alarm you. Now, there have been all kind of historic theologians that this has alarmed them, and it's caused them to go all kind of different directions, and they've caused all kind of problems in uh, the Christian communities over the years, and they've caused all kind of problems for themselves and other believers. But I say to you this morning, it shouldn't alarm you. Why should it not alarm you? Well, first of all, we need to recognize that Christ himself is not alarmed by this statement. Christ himself is not alarmed by this statement. Christ came as very man of very man, and he was and is very God of very God. 
Christ has no difficulty understanding his person in the incarnation or his role as the Son of Man. Remember, he's talked about himself in this way in verse 30 as the Son of Man, referring in in a context properly to his very humanity. Son of God, Son of Man. That is, he is deity and he is man. Very God of very God, very man of very man. And Christ has no problem understanding his person, who he is as the Son of God, and who he is as the Son of Man. He has no problem understanding his person in the incarnation that he assumed flesh, and he has no problem understanding in the incarnation his role as the Son of Man. This does not make him less than God in essence, for God the Father and God the Son are one and co-equal in essence. It makes him distinct as the Son of God, but it does not lessen him in any way. And Jesus doesn't fear that. How do we know that? How do we know that? Because I said, no, I'm I'm kidding. John chapter 5. Let's turn to John chapter 5. I want to take just a minute this morning. Stick with me just for a minute. I I try not to do things like this very often, but I need you to stick with me just a minute because I want you to understand some things from John chapter 5. Now, I could go to plenty of places in the New Testament. I'm not just bringing up this one place because it's the only place. I'm bringing up this one place because... A, time, all right? B, because I think a lot of the things that you need to see are, are exemplified in this text, and it's from the Lord Jesus himself. I, I totally appreciate what Paul uh, says about the Lord Jesus. totally appreciate what the Hebrews writer says about the Lord Jesus, uh, Peter, uh, uh, James, all those things. I appreciate all that. But here we have the Lord Jesus saying these things about himself. So stick with me just a minute. We're just going to go through this text. I'm not going to give you a bunch of points. I just want you to start to notice how the Lord Jesus refers to himself in the text. Verse 18. There's a problem here because the Pharisees and the Sadducees are all up in arms because the Lord Jesus had made some statements about himself and he's made himself equal with God and he's going to continue to do that here. And so they're ready to kill him. And in verse 19, it says, Therefore Jesus answered and was saying to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of himself unless it is something he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, these things the Son also does in like manner. He sees his relationship to the Father in proper consistency. The Father wants to reveal something through the Son, then the Father reveals it and the Son reveals it. If the Father is not revealing it, then the Son is not revealing it. It's not a question of could he, it's the question of would he. And he won't do it because he and the Father have one will and in that context he's working out that one will of God in the particular person of who he is as the Son. It's a very distinct role he has as the person of the Son. And he says, I have no problem. I recognize that I'm doing the things that the Father has sent me to do, and I don't do it unless I see the Father doing it. Verse 20. For the Father loves the Son and shows him all things that he himself is doing. 
and the Father will show him greater works than these so that you will marvel. Now that's interesting. Here's a connection in some sense to what we would think would be the deity of Christ. And yet in a moment here in verse 20, he kind of turns that on his head because he says, the father loves the son so much that he shows him all things that he himself is doing. And the father will show him greater works than these. Now we have to remember something about Christ and his humanity. Christ grew in stature in his humanity. He was born on this very earth and the scripture teaches us that he grew in stature and understanding. One writer points this very clearly in its proper context, I think. He says, Do we not understand that in the humanity of Christ, that he grew in stature even in his own understanding of who he was and the role that he was intended to be? And he learned it from where? The Old Testament. Jesus read the word of God in the Old Testament and learned and grew in his understanding of what he was doing on this very earth. It doesn't discount his deity. It doesn't discount his deity at all. Remember, it's his, it's his very person that assumed flesh. He is the Son of God. To assume something means that that something didn't all of a sudden change him. Yet that something being assumed is distinct enough that it has its own properties. So even for the son, he recognizes that things are being revealed to him in his ministry on this earth. Verse 21, For just as the father raises the dead and gives them life, even so the son also gives life to whom he wishes. Wow. Now, there's a particular reference in scripture to that, right? Who did the son raise from the dead? All right, did he raise Lazarus from the dead, but the father didn't want him to? No. He raised Lazarus from the dead because the father did want him to do it, and it was revealed to him in that time, and he did that which he was supposed to do, and yet he raised him in and of himself. Now, you and I, that brings all kind of contradictions in our mind. But we have to recognize the distinction of the two natures of Christ. He is deity, and he is man. Sinless man, but he is man. There is no problem in this context of what the Lord Jesus is doing. The Lord Jesus flips back and forth in this context, revealing his deity and revealing his human nature. Because here he's given us some distinct information of how distinct that is in its context. And yet when we move down to verse 25, he says, Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming now is when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. For just as the Father has life in himself, even so has he gave to the Son also to have life in himself. Wow. Jesus is attributing... From the Father, a saity. He has no problem moving in these two natures. It's not a problem for Jesus. It's a problem for our human minds. Fair enough. 
But Jesus has no problem with this, and the reason that he has no problem with it is because he fully understands the two natures in a way that you and I cannot. But just because you and I don't understand it in the fullness that the Lord Jesus does doesn't mean it's not true. Because he moves very clearly between his humanity and his deity even in this text. He moves very clearly between his humanity and noting and his deity noting that there is one will and yet he himself is carrying out that one will in the distinctiveness of his person. Did the Father die on the cross? The answer is no. No. The Father didn't die on the cross. The Son did. Only the Son could come and do that work. See, there's a distinctiveness in the person. God the Father elected before time began. The Son was there. The Son was a part of all of that work. The Son is eternal. Yet the Father couldn't come in time and actually die. The Father couldn't come in time and do those things. But Jesus, the Son, was sent. And He came in time. And He assumed human flesh. And He dealt with that flesh, tempted like you and I are. He suffered in that temptation. Remember our study in Hebrews? He walked through that. And yet in the same text, he has no problem saying he has life in and of himself. Now he connects that to the Father, because why? He and the Father are one. The Father, the Son, and the Spirit are one in essence. The essence of their very being. When we talk about essence, we're talking about the very, the, the very isness of something. And we have to realize that isness is spirit. God does not have a body like men. And yet at the same time, the very Son of God was sent, born of the Virgin Mary, to walk on this earth. Why? To do a work that none of us could do. He was sent as a mediator. He's the only one who could be the mediator between God and man. Because he came very God of very God and very man of very man. No one else could do that work but the Lord Jesus. Deity and humanity. He had a full, sinless humanity. Scripture tells us that he grieved. He grieved like you and I do. So that gives us sense and an understanding that he was maturing and growing in his humanity. When we see this as the Lord Jesus having no problem walking between the two in this text, and it goes further and I could say more, and for time's sake I won't. But when we see this walking back and forth in this text, it brings us to a place to understand Christ did not assume human flesh to reveal the very immensity of every detail of the purpose and plan 
of the deity of the triune God. If you think God sent his son on this earth and he assumed human flesh in the incarnation that he was going to reveal every single detail of, of the immense eternal purpose of God to you and I, then you're just wildly mistaken. Your brain couldn't handle it. My brain would disintegrate. You think you and I can understand the full, immense, complete, and total eternality of the purpose and plan of God himself, the one holy, true, living being? Paul said, think very sober about yourself. Don't think too highly of yourself. You and I couldn't understand that. The Lord Jesus knew his purpose and role. He understood that plainly. So he knew in assuming flesh, he didn't come for that purpose. He assumed flesh to be a mediator between God and man. Therefore, he could and, deal, and did reveal his work of mediation. But as a man, he was not intended to reveal everything, including his far future return in complete detail. Jesus is saying, no man will know the hour, not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son, because it's not my purpose. It's not my purpose to reveal that to you. The Father has not given that in a way that I have grown in that stature and that understanding while I'm on this earth that I would give that to you. There's been plenty of things I've already told you, but you didn't listen to that. Remember how he'd been telling the Pharisees all of these things about himself and that's what the John 5 text is about? And what's the problem with the Pharisees? They will not hear who he is, right? So if they're not going to hear who he is rightly, and that was information he was supposed to reveal and give, you think they're going to listen to other information? So he's saying to his disciples, it's not the time for that to be revealed. It's not even the purpose of it to be revealed right now. So as very man, Jesus the mediator does not reveal what only could be revealed according to the plan of the Father. If the Father had willed that Jesus reveal the exact details of his second coming, then Jesus would have revealed it. Remember verse 19? Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son of Man can do nothing of himself unless it is something he sees the Father doing. The Father was not revealing that, so the Son would not be revealing it. The Son of Man left that with the Father in the moment. Not because there was some weakness in Him, but because He is very God of very God and very man of very man. We need to recognize there's a difference between contradiction and mystery. Some will walk out today and say, well, there's some contradiction in what you're saying. Fair enough, maybe I didn't explain it well and you can find a contradiction in it. And I'm sure somebody will send me an email or something. 
It was not my intent to be contradictory. If you think I am, that's okay. Send me your email, and I'll try to do better. But I'm telling you plainly that there is not a contradiction. The Lord Jesus had no problem with going between the humanity and the deity, and John 5, 18 through 31 shows it, not to mention numerous other texts. If we don't understand those things, we need to leave that to mystery, and mystery is okay. Contradiction is something that can't even be in God. Mystery is something that God knows that you and I just don't understand. Jesus himself had no problem with his humanity and his deity, so neither should we. Amen? I want to leave you with three thoughts. Number one, remember not to dilute the deity of Christ. Don't dilute the deity of Christ and try to all of a sudden take his humanity into places that dilute who he is as the Son of God. If you want to be careful on these things and make sure you're not going to go off either ditch on the two sides of the road, well, don't dilute the deity of Christ. Number two, remember not to dissolve the humanity of Christ. Remember, he assumed flesh. It's real, actual human flesh, and he lived it. But if we start saying things like the deity of Christ kind of took over his humanity... Well, then wait a second. You're dissolving humanity altogether because once the deity completely takes it over, it's not humanity anymore. So anytime you want to think about some of these difficult passages, just look at the road and make sure you don't fall off on either side. Don't dilute the deity of Christ. Somehow the humanity makes the deity lessened. And don't dissolve the humanity... Thirdly, remember not to disregard the second coming of Christ. If all this other stuff just seems to in your brain, fine. Fair enough. It in my brain most of the time too. But Jesus' point here was not for you and I to get so worked up about the two natures as to whether or not Jesus knew his second coming. That's not the point of the text. The point of the text is he's coming again. And it's going to be swift when it happens. And it's going to be real and actual and everybody will know it. And every knee will bow. <laughs> they might not be bowing now, but they will bow. There won't be one ruler on this earth. Not one. Xi, Putin, even Trump, they'll all bow the knee. Biden will bow the knee if he's still alive. He'll bow the knee. The point of the text is to make it clear. There's difficulty everywhere around. Some things you've been given in Revelation to know. Other things you don't know. And they've not been revealed but what has been revealed is I am coming again, and when I come, it will be swift. Be ready. Be alert. Verse 42. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, you've been merciful to give us this time in your word. 
You've been gracious to us far beyond what we could even imagine or understand. Lord, I ask your mercy upon us as we come to your table that we be thoughtful. Lord, if the preacher has brought less help or more confusion today, please cover up my failings. that your people will still have their trust in you and you alone through the truth of, their word, of your word, that their hope would be in your word alone and nothing else. May we glory in you. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.